And I thought, you know, I want to learn about recording. So why don't I just interview people? And why don't I make that like a subject of a sort of more of a zine type magazine? Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Focusrite Pro Podcast. This is a mostly monthly show where we dive into the cutting edge technology behind professional audio products. My name is Dan Hughley, and on the show today, Ted and I are joined by recording engineer, mix engineer, audio archivist, and the editor of Tape Op Magazine, Mr. Larry Crane. We're going to discuss the ability to visualize sound, the importance of finding a collaborator, learning how to record through interviewing people, and a whole lot more. Larry Crane, welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. You are an editor, recording engineer, mix engineer, and archivist. You've worked with uh, amazing bands like Slater Kinney, Pavement, and Elliot Smith. What first brought you to work with sound? I think it was just a fascination with music and recording. I, I liked electronics and stuff. I think it it was, initially it was just the fact that there was stuff you could record on. You could hear sounds back and things. My parents had some little tiny Sony. Uh, three and a quarter inch reel to reel tape decks. Mm -hmm. And I used to record the T off the TV and stuff and then wonder why it sounded like crap. And then I remember putting a cardboard tube on the TV speaker and putting a mic at the end of it and going, Oh, that sounds even worse. Like it's all comb filtered. (laughs) So, you know, I just learned about stuff. And, and then, uh, in my teens, I think when the wall came out, Pink Floyd, I got that and I, I just couldn't believe like, what, what is this thing? You know, I didn't even understand it was a story at first. <laughs> I think that was just part of it that, that really uh, got me rolling with like the idea of creating something in the studio and, and such. So I used to, like in high school, I'd record my friends and yeah. people would come over and we'd mess around. It was all just, you know, cassette decks and a homemade mixer, all kinds of stuff. Do you play any instruments yourself? I, initially, not really. I mean, when I was... A teenager, I was building like weird electronic boxes and stuff at high school and and I would record like bleeps and stuff. I made these cassettes that I used to trade with people that were like electronic stuff, but they were very uh, very odd, not very traditional. But when uh, when I was in college, I started playing, I started recording more and learning a few more instruments and, and you know, self-learning. Mm-hmm. And then a band kind of started around me and some friends and I was playing, I'd I just said, oh, I could play bass. I could borrow my roommate's bass and and play in that band. So I ended up doing that. It was a band called Vomit Launch. And we were around from 85 to 92. Oh, cool. And we did far more That's than great. you'd ever imagine. <laughs> you know, like four albums and wow. toured and stuff. Yeah. So so was this all in Portland? Did you? I mean, you're from originally um, from Portland or what? I'm from California, actually. I, I grew up in Northern California. Oh, uh, great. Between like Oakland, Grass Valley, Nevada City area, and then uh, Chico, yeah, yeah. where okay. I was going to college. So our band was happening in Chico. And that, uh, because that's a small town, you know, you couldn't, you can't really play there and make a, a mark, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we would just head down yeah. to the Bay Area and Sacramento and all around and come up north and play Portland, Seattle, all the places out here. So kind of got us right. rolling. And that's kind of what made me fall in love with Portland, too. Uh, what was the state of the uh, audio industry when you first got started? I mean, initially I was, you know, I, I kind of was ignoring it. I was playing bass. And I was really into the idea of recording and crafting and stuff, but, you know, I would let other people handle that. And for us, for being a, for, for me coming through this, I never went into a really fancy studio. I was recording an eight track and 16 track 
studios for our for our all the albums we made actually. And so I was, you know, seeing these kind of like Fostex and Otari and you know the kind of setups that were, you know, not super over the top expensive like small tape width and and so I was mostly concerned about that our band was getting produced correctly. I would record demos on my four track cassette and uh, and I would work with the band on on getting everything ready to record, like kind of a musical director mm-hmm. part of the band, you know. Then uh, when we got in the studio, I would have all these lists of overdubs and ideas and stuff ready to go. And so I, I didn't really understand at the time, but I was kind of, you know, fulfilling a real co-producer yeah. kind of role, you know, with everybody. Yeah, it sounds like you're extremely organized with everything. Well, I, I can always visualize how things could sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, a, I think the really, the beginning of everything for me just starts as being a fan of music yeah. more than anything. Yeah. And so with me, like you listen to a record and you go, that record sounds great. And then the band does another record maybe. And you're like, it doesn't sound great. And then you sit there and you think, <laughs> what did they do? It is, it's not really, it's yeah. not as simple a, a thing to, to solve that, that problem because it could be just a matter of time or money or or picking the right person at the wrong time or you know it just it's a mm-hmm. million things it could be just the style of the music in the era like a, it, someone would say oh you got to have a gated snare drum even though the music wouldn't make sense that way you know so i've always yeah. thought about you know i listen to people's records and they go mm, yeah you know that that's a choice you know and <laughs> i always question it they did that yeah that's okay yeah they, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's one thing you could do in the studio, I guess. <laughs> it it is a unique art form, though, isn't it? In the sense that we, you know, as a musician, you're you write the songs or whatever you you master your performance, maybe or maybe not, whatever the case may be. But then you rely on sometimes a complete yeah. stranger to help you get your vision to where you want it to be. It's a really odd you know, yeah. way of, of expressing your art. Right. I mean, you know, a painter can sit down and, and start, you know, he's not going to have somebody come in and he's not going to hand somebody a brush and go, uh, can you put red over there? You know what Absolutely. I mean? <laughs> so we suffer that, that, you know, it's one of those art forms where you, it really is, like you said, it's, it's sometimes it's, uh, depends on which way the wind's blowing and, and you know, and how your, your record comes out or your, your recording ends up oh, and, yeah. and how people th- perceive it. I think a lot of it is, um, I, I think one of the things I've always tried to promote in, in tape op too is that it's about collaboration. And if you find a really good collaborator, then you, you'll be so many steps ahead. Yeah. It, it doesn't, I remember, so like our first records we did in, in Vomit Launch were done on eight track Otari 5050s, you know. And um, I remember my friend, another musician I knew who used to be in our band, he was like, you got to get a 16 track studio. You got to go to a 16 track studio. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is like 1986 <laughs> or something. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, that was more important that we were working with a friend of ours, Greg Freeman, who really understood our music. And he hung out with us and he'd seen us play. And he'd been in bands that were, he was in a band called Pell who was doing, you know, really cool indie rock instrumental stuff. You know, and he knew what we were trying to do and aesthetically where we fit into the marketplace of sorts. And the first time we went and did a quick demo with somebody, the guy had no reference point for the records we liked. You know, we'd say Joy Division and he'd go, I don't know what that is, you know, (laughs) and, you know, let alone The Fall or whatever, Flipper, whatever else we were listening to, you know, and so it was really important for me that you find the collaborator to work with yeah. that understands your music and wants to 
help you take it further, you know. Uh, who were some of your musical influences when you first got started? Well, the, definitely the yeah. ones I just mentioned there. <laughs> I, I love... I love a lot of English music. So like the Joy yeah. Division, New Order, that kind of world, and Cocteau Twins, things like that. Really lush, beautiful records. Mm. But uh, kind of related mm-hmm. to that, Brian Eno is yeah. just a massive influence. But Pink Floyd always has been one that I just think set the bar in a really cool way to be creative yeah. in the studio and, and make something sound interesting. But so many, I'll go real opposite too. Then I'll be like Velvet Underground and Stooges, you know, yeah. like I want some power and some sweat, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, so to me, it's like, there's a lot of great examples. I do like some things that are, you know, I know Pink Floyd's popular, but I I do like things like Led Zeppelin and stuff, but I don't get as excited about a lot of music that's, that's kind of more known sure. in general, yeah. you know, the Beatles, yes, but, you know, but a lot of stuff, I think, uh, I really looked between the cracks. I was a DJ and college radio and I wrote reviews for magazines of people's independent releases back in the eighties. And, uh, you know, I just really found that there's a lot of great stuff that's yeah outside the mainstream to a little the, degree. The eighties of often gets maligned. I, that was my era too. And, and, uh, yeah, when I was in college and you know, it's easy to make fun of the eighties and the, and a lot of the music that came out of it, but there was like, you talk about new order and, and that, that whole alt, pop there there were great bands whatever they wanted to call it yeah they were great bands and they were pushing the envelope and doing doing new things and their production techniques were were sometimes a little you know out of the norm and they just you know i loved a lot of that stuff man it was so melodic and the way they push synth use you know use of synthesizers and drum machines you you can learn so much from the early new order records and stuff Mm -hmm. and and you can also i mean if you look at the I mean, a great reference point is Our our Band Could Be Your Life. That book is just such an amazing chronicle of like 80s music that was kind of less than heralded by the mainstream. You know, when you you could go to a city in in the U.S. in the 80s and see like amazing local bands that were very passionate and very unique, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's, you know, if you think of something like the Butthole Surfers, I mean, that you know, ha-ha the name, but musically super unique. There's no other band that sounds like that. They have a great sound. That's true. Oh yeah, I was lucky to go see like the Minutemen and yeah. stuff like that back then. Yeah. And you know, you're just like, oh, this is people that really care about their music because there wasn't. You wouldn't see like a mainstream outlet yeah. for that music right. at that point. You would say, well, this has to live on the fringe because because nobody's you know the mainstream mm-hmm. is garbage music. Yeah, so <laughs> you're, that you're was, gonna... that's what was great about I'm going to date myself about being in college in the '80s because yeah. at the major universities, you know, I, I went to UMass and we had in the five college area, there were bands flying through there all the time. It was a big Mm -hmm. stop for a lot of unknown bands or young bands. And you got exposed to all this great stuff, you know, and it was, um, you know, some of them you never heard from again, but others you did, you know, but it was, uh, (laughs) I feel very fortunate when I look back on it, on all that music I was able to be exposed to during that time. You know, there's been a lot of great music through the nineties and, and now, and I've worked on some of that. A lot of times it's fantastic stuff, but it's always a little more calculated. Mm, like everything yeah, yeah. post Nirvana probably yeah. would be a great uh, reference point. A lot point. of contrived stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, because everybody started to realize you could, now you could do a car ad or something and no one's <laughs> going to get mad at you. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so if your music gets used in a commercial way, which thank God it does, obviously, but 
you know, it starts to maybe make your creating of the music, you're thinking a little bit like, well, yeah. I'll kind of keep it in this mi- major key mode instead of minor and, you know, make a tempo hop up a little bit so it works for people. You know, and it, it's just a little dangerous to have that lurking in the background, you know? Yeah. When did you start uh, working in um, making records professionally? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had, we did four albums in Vomit Launch plus other seven inches and all kinds of things. So all those sessions were kind of like accumulating in my brain. Even one of the seven inches was tracked on a four track cassette and then mixed by somebody. And, you know, so I was kind of getting deeper in and I moved to Portland after the band broke up in 91. And so 92, I moved to Portland or was it 93? Boy. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, that's hard to remember. Uh I think it was ninety two. And so I moved up here and um I made a vow that I would stay out of music because it was just I was so in debt and I was burned out. But I started four tracking in my basement and then people started coming over and I started recording people and within a couple of years, you know, like ninety five or so, I was um recording i recorded like an album for matt that was on matador like half of an album for some people from canada and new zealand bands are coming through on tour like cat power and versus and stuff and recording in my basement and and uh, elliot smith started recording in there and stephen malkmus and it was like well i i would say that i really never had like a a thought that recording people professionally was going to be something I wanted to do. And I think there's always a misunderstanding when uh, I get emails from people that, you know, I'm going to recording school and I want to see how you started. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is pretty funny because this was never my intention. I think it goes back to what I said earlier Mm -hmm. about being a fan of music and being excited about music. And that's always kept me involved, but the recording equipment and stuff like that i mean i i utilize it i enjoy the good ones i i hate the bad ones but at the end of the day i could just toss mm-hmm. it all in the lake you know i just <laughs> i really don't i think people are way too they get way too excited about yeah. recording yeah. equipment yeah. you know yeah which is it's like i never have had a you know i get the same way with bass guitars i was a bassist mostly i'm like people will be like blah 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 and i'm like I don't care about the bass. I just care about the notes you play and how it That's sounds great. and how, yeah. you know, like I don't, I don't care. I just, I think it's way too much attention paid yeah. to things that don't matter. So you, know? you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that you were started writing reviews and things like that. How did you make the yeah. jump from that to uh, starting uh, tape op? You know, I was writing for a bunch of different little places and they all kind of folded right around the same time, like sure. small zines and stuff from back East. Uh, one of them from Boston actually. Yeah. Well, and, yeah uh, which one? Probably. I'd probably know it. Oh. Uh, it was called file 13, I think. Yeah. 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 There were, uh, there were a few of them. Yeah. There were yeah. some good ones, you know, and I wrote for a couple of different ones. I even wrote for option briefly and, uh, my friends trouser press no no not them that would have been good i used to love that but man it's like you know i had i i had all these outlets i was even writing for local papers like in california and up here weeklies and stuff and then uh everything dried up boom i didn't have any writing uh assignments and uh i was talking to my friend who was a music editor here at the local weekly and i was like what do i do you know and I just sort of, I, at the same time I was recording people and the basement was getting busier and I thought, you know, I want to learn about recording. So why don't I just interview people and why don't I make that like a subject of a sort of more of a zine type magazine? Yeah. My friend, she's now a city commissioner, but my friend Chloe Udaly had a 
shop in town called Reading Frenzy, which is all like independent press and really inspiring stuff, you know, plus like fanographics comics and stuff like that. And it was, you know, I'd go in there and I'd look around, I'd see these magazines that someone was doing just for pure passion, you know. Uh, there were some really interesting ones. And so like one was called Thrift Score about going to thrift stores. And uh, one was called Beer Frame, which is reviews of like just oddball products. McJob was one, if you remember. Uh, there were all these like little magazines that were like self-published. And I thought, why not yeah. just do something on my own and do a focus of music recording instead of just music? Like there's plenty of people that are like, just here's a bunch of interviews, here's some record reviews. Yeah, You know, we've all seen that. And I thought, I'll just do like sort of an independent, you know, recording magazine. I was really, really bored by the existing ones. <laughs> and I still kind of am. <laughs> no offense to any of my friends out there. <laughs> but there's a format and it's boring and yeah, you're doing yeah. it, you know. And I just, I thought, let's do something. I'll just do something. I wanted to be outside of that, just off the radar, just same way as I was mentioning with 80s bands, you know, doing their own music. I was doing my own magazine. I never thought the industry would pay yeah. any attention to me whatsoever i i never asked for ads for the first three years or anything wow from wow, so pro audio you know you were self-published for the first three years before you started uh getting ads yeah i had some ads they were from records okay. like discord records and matador records yeah. my friends at oh, record cool. labels were supportive but i think that uh i didn't even think i could go to to anybody and say you know hey focus right you know yeah. buy an ad in this little <laughs> xerox magazine you know, because it, it didn't look, you know, what's your circulation, 2,500? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. You know, it yeah. didn't look very impressive. And so when about three years in, John Bacigalupi, who's yep. my partner now with Tape Up, he came aboard. That's about 20 years ago. He took it up to the next. It was like from 2,500 copies to 25,000 copies, you know, overnight. And he sold ads and he went really went to town and went to the trade shows, which I'd yeah. never done before and, and made friends and sold ads and he really ramped it up and is, he's the backbone yeah. that makes that thing happen. Yeah, John's pretty great. I meet with him quite, quite often, a couple times a year uh, when we, when we used to go to shows. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I know we're going to miss not going yeah, to summer yeah. NAM and oh. oh, everything. It's, it's yeah. We ADS. had a lot of good things planned Damn. for this year. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, we're going to have some oh, fun man. at Summer Nam. It's with, terrifying. Yeah, yeah. With I, our, our partner, Adam Audio, and stuff like that. And yeah, right. Yeah, their little house over there. Yeah. It's really a sham. Yeah. Shame. Damn. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I want some yeah, hot chicken. Me too. <laughs> I want to go to the, uh, the, the jam factory there in uh, Berry Hill. That place is great. Oh, yeah. So you started uh, the magazine in 1996, brought on John a couple of years later. And uh, how else has it evolved over the last mm -hmm. uh, 24 years? Boy, I mean, the crazy thing was, was when we became the highest circulation. We don't know exactly what moment it was, but, you know, we just kept at, you know, asking every year we'd check and see who has the most readers. And I remember calling John one day and I said, I want the highest. I want to be the biggest. And he's like, oh, come on, you know. And then a few years later, we hit it. And, uh, you know, being that it's just owned by me and John and, uh, it's very independently run. I was just in shock that we were able to pull that off. That was amazing, you know, and, and I think it just goes to show how much sure. the industry's yeah. changed, you know, and, and how different it is. Cause if you look at the history of, of music recording magazines and you look at the 
recording engineer producer from way back uh, 70s 80s whatever that was that stopped publishing before we did and it was really like geared towards professionals working in the studio and then you look at mix magazine it was geared towards professionals in the studio broadcast live and people were you know getting jobs through it when it was really vital you know it really was yeah. like a resource you know and we saw that disappear you know that sort of market so to speak for a magazine and if you look at this business and you say and this was not conscious i wasn't smart enough to even be doing this but if you looked at this business and say oh it's shifting we got to follow that you know it's becoming more hobbyist or it's being splintered mm -hmm. you know into smaller studios different spaces it's all shifting you would create a magazine like this one to take advantage of that, which is absolutely not what I did. You know, it, it happened to be that the idea that things were becoming more, uh, you know, more geared towards a personal mobile environment and such, as opposed to like having to always utilize a large studio space or what have you, just the, the advent of hard disk recording becoming more yeah. prevalent and uh, things like that just shifted it. And I did not see that as like a, I was not looking at it as like, oh, this will make us a, a marketing force to be reckoned with. It was just more like, I'm still just doing the same yeah. magazine I've always done. It just, the, the world yeah. changed around. What I've us. always liked about your magazine is that you've given, you know, you give a voice to a lot of engineers and musicians and producers that normally nobody would come in contact with outside of their, you know, yeah. their little world, their region. <laughs> wherever they might be or what city they might be in. And yeah. you give them a, you know, you give them a voice and we get to, to read about how they, uh, how they might be making a record and how they might be doing something that's, um, we never thought about doing. And, and, this, and yeah. Yeah. Right. Working differently, working independently. I mean, one of the things we saw first when we started the magazine was that there were all these people popping up at, in different locales. Like we were, we were meeting people from, you know, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Geez, everywhere, you know, right out the gate. And we started doing the tape op cons a yeah. few years after we started, you know, in the 2000s. And uh, those were gathering together all these people that had never met, you know, friends mm -hmm. from North Carolina and Iowa and you, know, you name it, man, Ohio. Uh, I mean, people are all getting together and just talking shop. And, and that was really cool to see, you know, the people just wanted, they wanted to feel like they could connect somewhere, yeah, yeah. you know which, you know, back to the idea of collaboration yeah, yeah. is the thing, you know, no one wants to work in a vacuum, you know, and the, and the articles we try to run, you know, would involve the thoughts of a world like that. But also if you look at the newest issue, there's Emily Wells, who's a self-recording artist and who's on a different path, but like, yeah, who knows yeah, where right. she'll end up. And, uh, there's three articles related to Abbey Road, you know, in that same issue. So the the most grand and, and well-known studio in the world. And so, you know, it, it just, to me, it's like every issue's got to be now it's John and I talk about the balance of what's going to be in it. And, you know, it's, it's going to be someone who's maybe recording at home and maybe someone who's recording on a grand scale and yeah. everything in between and an artist, a, a producer, an engineer, different aspects. Yeah. Kind of what's easier to define is what we don't cover, yeah, right. <laughs> right. you know? If someone's not recording music, if someone's mixing soundtracks, we're not going to, thank you, honorable job, yeah, we're yeah. not going to write about that, you know? We don't, we don't really cover broadcast, uh, we don't cover, we barely dip our toes in like people that do music for video sure. games or something, you know? It, 
Cause it's, I just really want to talk about people that are helping make yeah. music yeah. as an art form. And that's really, that's all that's interesting to me. I, and I knew right from the get go, I had to put limits on what we would have covered so that I didn't get inundated and try yeah. to make other people happy. So you started you the know? magazine in 1996 as if you didn't have enough on your plate at that yeah. time. A year later, you decided to open Jackpot <laughs> Recording Studio. Yeah. Uh, what, what made you decide to move? What made you decide to move from your basement into that studio? I was too busy. I think what made me decide to move was this one band whose name I cannot even recall. They were like sort sure. of a Limp Bizkit kind of thing, which is terrifying. And they were super misogynistic. And my wife at the time worked at Planned Parenthood. And I had this band down in the basement just screaming about female anatomy or something. I yeah. don't even want to repeat it. And then... And they brought this other guy over who was like a major drug dealer. And he was walking around in my house. Oh, you got a lot of CDs up there. Like he had to go up two flights of stairs to use the bathroom in the main part of the house. It was yeah. like, oh, God. And then the other time was, there are two incidents. And then there was, I was recording Stephen Malkmus in my basement doing demos <laughs> for pavement. And the my roommate, Francisco started hanging a painting on the wall. He still remembers this. Last time I saw him, he goes, man, I drove you crazy. He was like pounding a, a nail into the wall two flights up and we could totally hear it in the studio. And I was like, you know, I had to go up and say, hey man, not, not now. I've got Stephen Malkmus in the basement, you know? So, you know, and Stephen's just the chillest guy. He didn't care, but yeah. you know, it made it kind of hard to record if you're just knocking. So even though it's just like, you know, I mean, maybe that someone's I always tell people, be careful what you dream of or what you do, because I didn't really intend to have a professional studio. And then I had a busy home studio and then I moved out because I just couldn't, it was too much. And I'm glad I did it. And the first year of being commercial and working full time, you know, for after a couple of years of that, your skill level yeah, just shoots sure, through the roof, yeah. you know, because everybody's coming in. You, you just got to figure out how to mic up everything and yeah. make them happy. And that's the real skill. <laughs> How much of your, so were you, you were doing analog at home at the time? Oh yeah. You know, the only digital people were using at that point generally, besides that, I mean, mixing down to DAT tape or something was the ADAT or DA88 format. Yeah, I was going to say that was about the cusp of like the it ADAT was, coming out. And, yeah, yeah it, it, was, it had been out. I knew people that had ADAT studios and they, and here's the deal. First of all, I knew enough about <laughs> record about everything, electronics and, and data storage, to think, why in the world would you record digitally to, to yeah. moving tape? VHS I mean, that's just cassette. nuts, you know? Yeah, to a, a crappy cassette that jams up. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's just stupid. And so I knew that was stupid. I was just, I was waiting it out till they get it to record the hard disk. And the other thing was, so many studios started because the ADAT was like, it looked yeah. more appealing to them as cost-wise. And so these little studios started and, and they were run by people sometimes that could not really record efficiently. They, they were yeah. terrible recordists. So everybody would go record there. They'd come out, they go, that sounded awful. Must be the ADATs, you know. Now, a great engineer can make a great record yeah. on anything. We know that now. But back then they would blame the ADATs. So I bought a... 16 track two inch MCI and I got to work and everybody said it was the tape deck. And I said, okay, sure. You know, JH 24 probably or what? JH 16, oh, 16 actually. Oh, 16. They're, yeah. They're, you said 16 track. Yeah. It's a 16. Uh, it was the very earliest ones they built. Yeah. 
there was they made some they made better ones later. I had the worst. Yeah, the first studio but, I worked in had a, a GH twenty four, a twenty four, and, and a Trident console, which was like the yeah, nice the the B studio pack, Classic. right? You know, it's like. <laughs> right totally somebody yeah. was like selling gotham audio was selling those exactly. out the back door Some right guy in a i white mean van. that's like a classic <laughs> yeah it wouldn't be it wouldn't even be an yeah, adb it'd be yep, a 24, 24 or trident or something yeah. like yeah so it'd be a, yep saved yeah. saved a few thousand that's there great. yep oh man so yeah i mean those like the thing that we mentioned the recording gear kind of thing earlier too like the thing about it was even when I opened the studio, getting a tape deck was a good 24 track was going to be a, a bad condition. Yeah. Good 24 yeah, track was going to be 10 yeah. grand, you know? So I could see yeah, why the mm-hmm. ADATs were appealing, you know, it's going to save you money. But as we saw the cost of tape decks started to go down once pro tools started really taking hold and such. So that shifted and I bought my first 24 track for like 10 grand. Actually, it's the one in my garage. There's two over over here now, you know. And then the next one was like, you know, twenty five hundred. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you know they just went shooting down in value. But then no new yeah. ones are being built. So that's just this window of opportunity, you know. Do you still record to tape? I do. I I am not a tape fanatic. You know, I'm not adamant about it. And, and in fact, I'm very discerning about when I use it. And I re- really upset with people when they try to tell me <laughs> I should use it. But I want to be making that choice, you know. I like recording. I have a 16-track setup and a 24-track setup, two-inch Otari MX. uh, uh, Yeah, those are good machines. I saw saw that listed on your site. Those are good machines. Yeah, there's three. There's one in my garage and there's two down here. I've got double Mm -hmm. the amount of head stacks and sound cards I need, audio cards, all this stuff. I have all these extra parts. They're like the Toyotas and tape decks. They're really reliable. They just keep working. So I use those occasionally. I've done some records that have stayed totally on mm-hmm. tape over the years, even the last few years here. I like tracking basics to them if I can on the 16 track and then dumping yeah. it over to Pro Tools and overdubbing and yes. then mixing through my console. I miss I know. miss working with it's a, a good, limited good. number of tracks like that. You know, yeah, it's a, ble- it's a blessing and a curse to have 80 tracks in Pro Tools, but, you know. It's the funniest thing is I... I I find it really hilarious to be like in the session and if they want to work on tape, I keep saying over and over, I'm like, we have mm-hmm. to map everything yeah. out. We have to map everything out. And that's really where that sort of, you know, mapping, yeah. you know, sitting down and going, what does this song have on it? And people won't even yeah. think that way anymore. And you have to be like, look, you've never made a record this way. And I have, and I'm really got to, if you want stacks of backing vocals, we got to do yeah. those real early on, bounce them down, submix them. And yeah. then add new things on top of that. Cause, and you'd have to get really, people will just be like, I had a guy, I learned the hard way. I had this guy come in, fill up 24 tracks and then, without even getting a vocal down. And I'm like, where's the vocal yeah. going to go, buddy? And he's like, I just wanted to get everything else down first. I'm like, there's nowhere to go. You know? There's, yeah, it's almost we're like out of tracks, film, you know? You, know, you yeah. got to. Yeah. You're right. You, you have to map it out. Yeah. Think, you know, okay, this song, what, do you, what are we doing? What's... Uh, you know, what's the instrumentation and how are we going to make this all work yeah. know, within 24 or 16 tracks or whatever. Right. And then those things start to define the songs mm-hmm. and naturally the process naturally right. defines them. And that's a great thing instead of this goddamn open-ended world that we yeah. live in right now where it, people yeah. won't make decisions, they won't define things. And I can't believe when you're on the fifth mix revision, which is fine, 
but then, then someone goes, can you change the snare sound? You put a different sample in, you know, you're like, yeah. Oh my yeah. God. You know, that should have been decided yeah. like a hundred years ago. So you, you've been uh, at Jackpot for 23 years. You had your home studio yeah. for years before. Probably worked with countless artists over the years. Um, mm-hmm. What type so. of music do you enjoy working on? I'm certainly pigeonholed, you know, with indie rock, alternative rock, college radio music, whatever the hell it is, you know, certainly because of Elliot Smith, mm-hmm. the band I was in, that sort of world that I was working within define that to a degree but you know i do all kinds of music you know i mean i've worked on classical hybrid type stuff new classical music americana things bluegrass bands you know string bands old time string bands man i've done you know jam bands you know you name it i mean i've probably probably recorded something you know i don't get a lot of jazz yeah. which i would really like to do but there are some uh, really good engineers and producers in town who do, and they, they'll they come nice. in and track, so that's kind of cool. And I haven't done, I don't think, hardly any reggae, which yeah. I love reggae. So it's not there's not a big reggae scene. <laughs> you know, li- there's you not know, a big reggae you, band scene here. <laughs> or someone must have them locked down. I don't you, know. You know, you were someone else talking is, about reggae. That's funny. I'm going to bring bring back something and limited yeah. amount of tracks. Uh, when I was in, I, I did go to music school. And, yeah. You know, we, I talked about this on a previous episode. It's like, you know, here I am. I've recorded one album. You didn't go to music school. You've recorded more than you can count. So what what can you say about music school? But <laughs> I got the multi-track for a Bob Marley song, <laughs> you know, 24 tracks. Oh, yeah. The organ and the toms were on the same track. So, you know, you're oh, limited to 24, you yeah. get creative, you go, all right, what's not going to be playing when I'm playing that organ and, and vice versa. So, you know, you, you get really creative with that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done those records, man. The, the, the Just mix it bit yeah. by bit yeah. and splice it back together, you yeah, know, if you have to. I mean, that's fine. Use every, every yeah. extra I started, inch of tape you can use. Yeah. <laughs> you, you use. By the end of my tape years, I was getting really methodical. I really was inspired by Joe Ciccarelli who a friend had worked with and was like, look, you can put the faders up in the mix, the record's done. And so I went back, I had to make some instrumental mixes of some December stuff that I'd produced last year. I had to list, make these mixes of it. And I, cause I never made instrumental versions back then for some reason. And I put the 24 track up and I played it back and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Just mute this thing. Make that other thing. The solo mute, unmute it. When it comes back, put some reverb nice. on the vocal. I'm done. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, Uh, you mentioned Elliot Smith briefly. He was your partner when you first opened Jackpot. Mm. What was your relationship like with him and what kind of work do you do with his estate? Well, um, you know, when when I was going to move in, I'd already recorded Mm. Elliot at my home studio uh, just briefly. One part of one song, vocals for one song on either or. And then uh, I was definitely going to move out about six months later. I was I got to get a commercial space. And um, someone, a friend of ours said, hey, Elliot is going to build a studio. You guys should talk. You know, I didn't know him as well as I knew a lot of his yeah. friend, our mutual friends. But uh, we met up, had a beer, and I was like, I'm going to build a space. It's gonna, I'm going to run the space. I've heard studio partners are bad ideas. But if you want to bring your stuff down, help me build it, and then work out of there, we'll just prorate it. Just pay the bills, you know. Um, and he said, sure. And then. He helped me. It was, we built it. We had a blast, you know, getting the studio up and running. And then, uh, you know, he'd be like, want to help me record something, you know? And every once in a while, we'd just knock something out. And so it was just, it was really casual. We kind of built the friendship up. He was like, I don't know, you know, sometimes I record with people and it just doesn't work, you know? And 
they have their opinions, I have mine. And I was like, okay, I, I understand. And then, so I knew I just should facilitate. I shouldn't be like dominating. And I, I really, back then, especially, I really did never, I would be very laid back in the studio. I'd get it all done technically, but I wouldn't be too pushy on the people. I'd just let them move at their own pace. And so with him, I just it was facilitate. I'd set the mics up and help him record and, you know, make a few suggestions and then mix, do a rough mix and we'd go on to the next song. So that, that was just yeah. easy. You know, he, yeah. he was a genius. <laughs> Most people aren't that good. <laughs> we, we did one song called Miss Misery and that ended up getting him an Very Oscar cool. nomination. And that was just wow. supposed to be a yeah. demo, you know, it's bizarre. That was, uh, that was 16 that track. Was Goodwill, Goodwill <laughs> Hunting, right? And Gus, Gus Van Zandt. Yeah. For Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Right. So crazy. Yeah, I remember all that because it was a big deal that he got nominated because oh yeah you know, it seemed pretty yeah. weird up against right, trisha right. yearwood yeah, and no, it was Celine a big deal Dion. and he performed too didn't he on like like yeah. oh yeah he was oh, on the oscars cool. <laughs> what a nightmare <laughs> yeah it's got to be frightening come on that just it was not something his career needed honestly but yeah it's not his world at all right i mean that's like no that's it's crazy. just garbage there's other people that want yeah, that's that what they dream kind of, of world. Yeah. and you continue to work on his um on his work what, what do you have? Uh, right. You mentioned you have something coming up. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So in 2006 or so, I think Elliot had passed away and uh, his parents were like, they were interested in maybe doing a like a bonus version of the Either Or album. And uh, they said, do you want to look through the file to the tapes and find stuff? And his parents asked me to work on that. They knew that we'd had a great connection. I went down to LA and I sorted through all these tapes and I found a bunch of unreleased songs and that became mm. the new moon album. And so I worked on that. But before I started that, I said to his, his uh, father, I said, well, you know, you should have an archivist or someone should go through and catalog everything. And he's like, Oh, do you want to do it? And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, I didn't mean that, you know? Uh, but I did. And I still have a lot I got to catch up on recently, but you know, it, I just, uh, figured out what was in there and I made, had transfers made, you know, of all the tapes, really high quality. And, and so I just kind of, whenever there's a project and they'll just go, Larry, what sort songs would work for this? And then if they want to use them, I'll remix them, you know, make sure the audio quality is maintained and that the best takes are used or what have you. And it's nice to do for my friend's yeah, legacy. You know? good. It'd be really hard. I mean, how, how would, you know, someone's parents be able to look at a two inch tape and go, yeah, what's that? Absolutely. You know, what do I, right. what's on it? You know, that you need a rough mix and you need to catalog it yeah. and write down every track and, and say, this was released, this was unreleased. And it took a, a couple yeah. of years to get all that work done initially. It was um, nuts. So with, with all of your years of experience, how do you stay on the cutting edge of audio technology? <laughs> Or do, or, or, do or do you? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> or do you not care? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I do think I do a lot of mixing. So I do a lot of remote mixing, and I I do use like uh, Isotope RX quite a bit, and I've started using Oak Sound mm -hmm. Soothe recently. Gulfos. I'm just finding all these plugins that are not trying to emulate yeah. you know hardware. Not, not that that's a bad thing, but they're just totally mm -hmm. unique plugins, you know, even something like Transient Designer, which obviously emulates the real thing. But, you know, some of the 
Oxford, yeah. the Sonic stuff uh, is really cool. There's there's just a lot of cool things out there that are not that are new to us in a way. And I I find that a lot of times those can really help you salvage a, a poor recording sure. or, yeah. or a limited recording. And and so that's kind of the area I've I've spent the most time sort of like digging into because honestly, like if I mix a record for someone, the things that they always respond to are tape delays, plate reverbs. Yeah. analog compression it's kind of funny but the old standards really yeah, they hold do. well they were standards you know? standards for a reason yeah you know when if you put and i think we learned this in the 80s if you put a really fancy flanged reverb echo backwards delay thing on every vocal it just starts yeah. to get really tiring and worrisome and if you do pretty standard old techniques that have been around since the 60s 50s and 60s it it always has a, yeah, a lot sure. more resonance to it, you know. So I I, I kind of just use a lot of old school stuff mixed with new school, you know, fixing tools. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? you've got one of our you've got a Focusrite Red too, don't you? EQ. Yeah, and that's a that's a yeah. fantastic equalizer. I had a red. Uh, what three. was the compressor? Yes. Is yeah, that the, the three. three? The three. I had that, but you know what? I sold it because the faceplate was symmetrical. <laughs> That's brilliant. I Do you know it. what I mean? That's funny. Wow. I yeah. couldn't I could not take it. It was the most horrible, yep, fantastic that's device. That's really funny. Amazing sound. <laughs> um, but the symmetrical uh being the, that your your makeup knobs yeah. were like No, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. Going on other yeah. either end. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. I mean I mean that could yeah. just be me. That's interesting. But um no, that's good, I good information. Need, I, my brain just <laughs> just about <laughs> melted. I had it for several years and I'd always be like, oh God, it sounds yeah. so good, but it's terrible to use. And it was really simply that's funny. simply that functionality. Well, if we come out with another one, we'll we'll make sure it's Yeah, the Larry Crane edition will be <laughs> yeah. laid out like Swapping two channels. Around. Um oh, man. no, I mean, is that strange? That's a really I think that it looked really yeah. good because of the symmetry. Yeah. I like symmetry in my mixes even and but that's it was funny. a really strange thing that's to realize funny. one day I, yeah. that I just had to that's get rid funny. of it. <laughs> and I had oh, a yeah. liquid channel, oh, yeah. and we don't, probably don't want to go too far into that oh, either. Like, people loved yeah. those things. <laughs> yeah, that, they they loved them. People that had time to yeah. to delve in. I sold it to a guy who had a pretty major home studio, and he loved it. But I couldn't. I, I'd look at it, and there was too yeah. many parameters, and I almost too many stop options using it. available. Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't understand what I was even looking at. I just would plug into <laughs> something else. And that's yeah. that's kind of the way I yeah. work in the studio. That's how I learned. You know, like you just look at it and you go, "Okay, it's a one knob yeah. mic pre with a couple of buttons. <laughs> I can get that." You know, oh look, there's all these <laughs> options. No way. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? that's what really annoys have... me about a lot of the plugins that are out there. Oh like yeah, some of them are just, you know, I just want a few knobs and yeah. just turn. Oh you know, God. Yeah. Uh, there's some, they should hide half the knobs, you know, some of them do that now, but some of yeah. the things are terrifying, <laughs> you know, but then again, there's like those one knob ones where I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, you need some, that's terrible too. Somewhere <laughs> that's, in that's between one idea. and too many yeah. is, what, is what we need. Yeah. That's really, yeah. that's kind of silly, you know, like it, we can't dumb it. I think that's the crazy thing about audio right now is you can't dumb it down. The more you dumb it down, the more yeah. uh, it ruins the music you know, basically. And the more detailed you get, the more it ruins the music. So I think that recording equipment needs to be in the middle somewhere where you can get to the details or you can buy a piece that'll delve you deeper into the details. 
you know, like with equalizers is a great example. There's so many different ways you can equalize and different types of, they, they all yeah. sound a little different, you know, every brand, every model, you know, and th that's super awesome. That's great. Go for it. But it's like, if the gear is so detailed and so many choices that you can make something sound really bad, then it, the company's kind yeah. of failed in my opinion. And there's a, yeah. there's a lot of that right now. And time wasting, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, you're not, you're not spending time yeah. doing what you should be doing if you're filling. I, you know, if you're, I think that's the great thing with, if you learn like opening a commercial studio, like I did, you have to please the clients. Like I said earlier, you got to work fast, please the clients, make things sound good, make them happy, get them out the door. And I'm not saying that mm -hmm. in, a, in a money way. I'm just saying yeah. that like, that's, you got yeah. a day, you got to do something and working fast and, and having efficient tools that you understand. And you can look across the room and see a, an led blanking and know it's at the right level or a VU meter, you know, that, that just yep, makes yeah. your job easier. Yep. And that's, that's the key. Well, Larry, that's a great, great spot cool. to, to kind of wrap this up, but, uh, yeah, there you go. But before, that'll, before that'll we do that, <laughs> is, is there anything else, uh, you'd like to plug anything you have coming up or anything, uh, anything going oh, on you want to talk about? Man. Yeah. You know, I don't get the chance to, uh, there's two things I got to work on recently, actually. And I don't get the chance a lot to really dig in and produce and super go to town with an artist. But I worked with a band called Candace, like the name uh, Candace, is, and they're a band. They're three gals that have this kind of shoegazery band. And they have a new record coming out, which I'm completely blanking on the name because it didn't have this name when we were working on it. But it's it's coming out tomorrow, I think. And uh, it's really good. It's just I got to do like all kinds of layered, echoey, reverby, oh, crazy production we would play drums and then make a loop out of the drum part Very and cool. play over that no, that's fun and uh that's good it's really cool it's really layered up and it's really interesting i i think that that's i'm really proud of that and then the other thing that, that is coming out for record store day which i think is in june now is a, a live album by mm -hmm. the singer melanie mm -hmm. yeah from the 60s 70s she played at woodstock and everything uh, brand new key would right. be her biggest hit and uh, it's a live record from the UK in 1974 that I mixed. And it also features the incredible string oh, band yeah. guys, yeah, yeah. Mike Heron yeah. and Robin Williamson. Uh, really amazing um, recording. It was really a treat to to work on that. So that whole concert, I think the whole concert might come out on CD or download, but the LP is a select all the tracks with the, the incredible string band guys. And that was just a really amazing thing to work on too. I was... I, I started having to study all her music I, and become yeah, and become yeah. a fan, <laughs> you know, because she's really good. So that's those two things are fantastic. And it's it's really an honor to work on something where you get to really produce or something where you get to really uh, yeah. uh, dive into the past and do a little research. Well, good. We'll keep an everything. eye out for those. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And Larry, thank really you cool. so much for this today. And congratulations on all yeah, the success you. of uh, your studio as well as Tape Out Magazine. <laughs> and we wish you, uh, oh, thank you. continued success uh, for many more years to come. Yeah, thanks, man. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Focusrite Pro Podcast. This mostly bi-monthly podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dan Hughley, for Focusrite. Music is by Merlin. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our conversation on social media at Focusrite Pro. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.pro.focusrite.com. I just really want to talk about people that are helping make yeah, music yeah. as an art form. I think it goes back to what I said earlier mm-hmm. about being a fan of music yeah. and being excited about music. And that's always kept me involved, but the recording equipment and stuff like that. I mean, I, I utilize it. I enjoy the good ones. I, I hate the bad ones, but at the end of the day, I could just toss mm-hmm. it all in the lake, you know? Yeah. 